0: Hello, I'm Bruce Tolgan, author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, just published by Harvard Business Review Press, and this is The Indispensables, a podcast featuring conversations with real go-to people who stand the test of time in the real world of work. What makes them tick? I'm thrilled to say my guest today on our premiere episode is four-star general, Dennis Reimer, retired from the United States Army in 1999 after his last command, four years as chief of staff of the United States Army. How does somebody get to be chief of staff of the United States Army? And what does that kind of indispensable look like? Uh, I am thrilled to welcome uh, a true American hero, Uh, And I'm going to read his bio because I don't want to get it wrong. Dennis J. Reimer, General, United States Army, retired. Uh, General Reimer is a four-star general. Uh, He's a native of Oklahoma. He graduated from the United States Military Academy in 1962. He served for 37 years in the United States Army, primarily in leadership positions at all levels, including Chief of Staff of the United States Army and member of the Joint Chiefs of Staff from 1995 to 1999. Uh, General Reimer, uh, on behalf of myself, my family, uh, and uh, my countrymen, I say thank you for all you've done to keep America strong and the world safe, and uh, welcome to the Indispensables. Thank
1: you very much, Bruce. It's it's very kind of you, and I just simply say it was a labor of love for me.
0: I believe that. And um, I I know that you are uh, a mission-driven person. Uh, Of course, all of your work has been mission-driven. Maybe you could say something about the importance of mission uh, when it comes to your career and your perspective on service uh, to others.
1: I joined the Army uh, after graduating from West Point in 1962. And of course, that was the Vietnam era. And I stayed in until 1999. And I always talk about the fact that I was a member of three uh, different armies, uh, all American, each different. And one of the things that I learned early on in my career was Every organization has to look at themselves and ask, what is our mission? What are we supposed to be doing? There's a great book written by Peter Drucker, which calls the five most important questions you'll ever ask about your organization. It talks about the mission, the plan, who are your customers, those kinds of things. And uh, that has really helped me uh, as I've gone up the ladder, it's helped me even more. I always talk about good organizations are mission-focused and values-based. They know what they're supposed to be doing, and they do that. And they gauge their or they grade their self against that mission. But most importantly, they have the values that, that are so important. In my career, we've had a number of uh, times where things didn't go exactly right. I can think back on the time when I was chief of staff of the Army and we had uh, a sexual harassment uh, problem associated with Aberdeen, a training base and the institutional response to that was to sit down and figure out what are our values we, we came up with loyalty duty respect self-service honor integrity and personal courage i know those because if you take the first letter of those those values it's leadership and i think it's really all about leadership understanding their values and leading their value, living those values if you look at what's happened to us today i would just say to the police force you need to have your values. You need to have those values out there that uh, you live by. And if we had those values, then maybe some of the bad things that happen every once in a while wouldn't happen. So I'm a real a firm believer, and it's proved out in my career, that you've got every organization has got to know the mission. Every person in that organization has got to know what that mission is. And then everybody's got to know the values. It's not just knowing them and being able to recite them, but it's being able to live them day to day. That's so very, very important, in my opinion.
0: Where does integrity fit in the sort of nexus of mission and values? What role do you see for integrity, basic integrity?
1: Basic integrity, it goes back to my time with, uh, at West Point, and it's doing the right thing. There's a part of the cadet prayer that says, help me to choose the harder right instead of the easier wrong and never to be content with the half truth when the whole can be won." That I learned back in 1958, Well I could actually learned it in 58 to 62. And, and that stuck with me. And it's been kind of my moral compass. Integrity is a bedrock of the values, I think. I mean, you, I used to tell people they can take a lot of things away from us, but they can never take their integrity away from us. We have to give up that integrity. We own that integrity. And you should never give it up because that's so very, very important. I think that leads to the indispensable piece. I'm, it, people that people come to you and they know if you're a truth teller, they'll come back to you. Maybe they may not like what you tell them sometimes, but at the same time, they know it's the truth because you speak the truth. So I do think integrity is so very important, but all of those values, whatever they may be. I mean, at West Point, we had duty on our country. Uh, and I think it's important to have values that everybody believes in, everybody understands, and everybody lives by them.
0: Yeah, and doing the right thing, um, you know, it, it, it sounds vague to so many people. And yet, if you put meat on the bones of that, it, it seems to me that if you're really playing the long game, you have to make an effort one moment at a time to do the right thing for the right reasons. And as you say, sometimes that's really hard.
1: It is, and I think one of the things you try to do with values and mission is that you try to develop a culture in an organization where people understand what they're supposed to be doing. They hold each other accountable to do that. Uh, They understand the values of the organization. That culture is so much so important because it sort of builds the trust that uh, you need to have between leaders and individuals. And, you know, I I always talk about any organization, we look at them in terms of what they say and what they do but that's only the tip of the iceberg. It's what they say, what they do, what they measure, what they prioritize, and what they reward. If you can get all five of those things lined up properly, you're going to have a good organization. People are going to be comfortable in that organization. And I just think that's the way you run an organization and you know there there's a role for leadership all the time. I think leadership is the indispensable piece of uh, life right now. Uh as we look at this world that we're facing right now, when when, after the Cold War was over, we had a very dangerous world, but it was a very predictable world. In 1990, when the Cold War ended, we went into what we call the VUCA world, volatile, uncertain, complex, and ambiguous. And it certainly was. We didn't know our enemy. We had to learn what our enemy, who our enemy was, what our enemy was. And it took time to do that. And now we're in what I call the VUCA on steroids world you throw this coronavirus on top of all the lucas stuff that we've been dealing with, it is more complex, and it puts a greater demand upon leadership, in my opinion.
0: Yeah, I I agree with you. And I think that so many individuals right now feel like there's so much outside their control. And I always tell people, when you feel like you're dealing with so many factors outside your control, uh, the only thing you can really do is control yourself and focus on you, right? So when, as a leader over the years, of course, uh, including being the top leader in the United States Army, what, what defined the indispensable people you surrounded yourself with? When you were looking around, there must have been many people you admired uh, coming up through the ranks. Um, and then when you were looking at people, what makes somebody indispensable in, in your eyes?
1: Well, yeah, first of all, you're exactly right. And uh, I do think uh, I had some wonderful role models in my life. And it, it was just pure luck. When I, I don't have any military background in, in my family at all. When I came in, into the military, I didn't understand the military. So uh, even after I graduated from West Point, one of the things they always told us at West Point is the Army is going to be different than West Point. And I understood that. So I, I learned to listen pretty well. When I went out to talk to people and uh, interface with the troops, I asked them what they were doing, how they were doing it, and tried to learn what their their job was and how I could best fit into that uh, that particular equation, so to speak, and help them do their job better because they were doing the heavy lifting. Leaders, I think, uh, are responsible for creating an environment where people could do the work that needs to be done. In my uh, career, I, I interfaced with a number of people fairly uh, closely. Uh, I was lucky enough to work for General Creighton W. Abrams when he came out of Vietnam and he became the chief of staff of the army and I was selected at his age. So I spent uh, a couple of years there working for him before he passed. And uh, I, I admired him so much because he came out of Vietnam. We knew we had a lot of work to do. We had lost the support of American people. We had to gain that back and we had to become a fresh professional organization. And General Abrams was just rock steady on that. He said, we're going to Fix tomorrow we're going to be better tomorrow and not worry so much about trying to make yesterday perfect and i think he did that he put us on a, on a, a path where the mission drove us and what we did we went back to the mission was to defeat the soviets on the plains of europe and that drove everything we did the american people gave us uh, uh, some money to get good equipment we had a big five program to provide tanks helicopters Patriot missiles, those kind of things, and that helped us to get the tools that we needed to fight. Um, And so his his determination to stay the course, when a lot of people were advising him to do this or that, he said, no, we've become a professional force, and that got the support of the American people back. Another person that uh, I didn't work as closely with, but I worked fairly closely, and I, I know him fairly well, was General Colin Powell. He was indispensable in my mind, because if General Powell ever told you that he was going to do something, you could count on it. If he said, I'll get that to you, you knew, and no matter how busy he was, he would get that to you. He was one of those people that came through when he said he would do something. And so his example inspired me a great deal. And there were many people along the way, General Carl Bono, who I worked with. There were people that were junior in rank to me, uh, who had a great uh, impact upon me, who I admired, non-commissioned officers who did their job so well. There are too many of them probably to name individually, but it was those people that took an interest in you and shared your values and shared your desire to get things done. So uh, I was very fortunate to have a, those role models in my life, and I would not be here talking to you, but it hadn't been for them.
0: So, The the trait you mentioned um, in General Powell, that if he said something, he was going to do something, he did it. It sounds so simple, but people struggle so much with overcommitment. People are so busy. They have so much to do in so little time. And yet, you know, some people, they think, well, indispensable means the person who says yes, yes, yes. Um, How much is that the common denominator?
1: Yeah, you know, and and General Powell's a good one because, you know, at that time he was the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. I I guess I first got to know him uh, when I was a young Brigadier General and he was up at the Secretary of Defense's office and we we spent, uh, the group that I was with spent a couple of hours with him and you could tell right away this 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 person really knew what he was doing and it was just so interesting to listen to him we could have talked to him for two days I think and we had a couple of hours and as he went up in rank he even had more responsibility but he always was one of those people he said I'll get that to you all right thanks I'll I'll come back put to you on that and he did it and he made the time because it was a priority for him I've tried to adopt that too. You get an awful lot of requests, and I'm one of those that tends to say yes, I'll do that. I'm not as good as General Powell was in in, in that area, I'm sure, but at the same time, I try to do that. And particularly for those people I've worked with before, uh, I get requests now to write letters for people for various things. And if I've worked with them before and, and we get a relationship, I always try to tell them yes. If I cannot, if I know I can't do it. And I have to tell them, no, I can't do it. And I, here's the reason why. And I think if you explain that to people, then they understand that.
0: Yeah. So one of the concepts that I really try to explore in our research is those people who, who have, of course, you're somebody who had a lot of institutional authority, um, you know, a million soldiers and you were the boss, right? But so many people, they operate without institutional authority but they still have to get stuff done. And, and there's this concept of influence. When, you know, to me, what real influence is when other people really want to do things for you. What is it that makes somebody truly influential in that way? I would
1: do it a couple of ways. I think, first of all, I'd do it by listening to people and hearing what they're saying. So many times when you communicate, it's just it's a one-way street. You're talking and you should be listening. I often talk about the fact that the good Lord gave us two ears and one mouth because he wanted, him, wanted us to use them in that proportion. So many people don't do that. They're always on transmit. They're never on receive. So first of all, listen to people and then find out who are really the experts in, in, in the area that you, that you uh, need expertise in. I don't think I ever entered a uh, room where I thought I was going to be the smartest person in that room. My job was not to be the smartest person in the room. My job was to find the people who had that knowledge. And so I think if you're looking to to be uh, influential, know your business, that piece of business that pertains to you. So many people want to look at how you run the Army. And I'll go back to my time and two times in the chief of staff's office, one with General Abrams. I thought those, those, those uh, decisions were going to be so simple. And, and from my perspective, they were. I didn't have the responsibility to make, and I, have, I watched them being made. When I got on the other side of the door and became chief of staff 20 years later, I found those were very difficult decisions. So I, I think as, as you're going through life, concentrating on being an expert in your particular area. Do that the best you can possibly do it. I had three things that drove me in my career and three things that I tried to convince everybody, all the leaders in the Army, to buy into at the end of my career. It was what we call a leadership philosophy, but I think there's more than a leadership philosophy. It's a lifetime philosophy. I said, First of all, do what's right every day, legally and morally. You have a lot of lawyers that'll tell you what you can do legally. But the only person who knows whether it's morally right or not is the person looking back at you in the mirror. And you've got to do the right thing. The second thing was to be all you can be. That time in the Army, that was a slogan that we recruited people. We recruited them and they had expectations. We owed them those expectations. And we owed them the fulfillment of those expectations. And I also challenged all the subordinate leaders to be the best they could be also. And the third thing was to treat people uh, the way you'd have them treat you. You know, just a, a saying, uh, just an offshoot of the golden rule. Treat others as you'd have them treat you. And I think if you do that, then you, you gain the respect. And I think that's, that's, that's terribly important. Part of that respect shows in trust. You've got to gain the trust of your people. Leaders don't automatically gain trust from the troops. You have to earn their trust. There was a saying that came out of Vietnam that said that some leaders talk the talk, others walk the walk. You've got to walk the walk. You've got to demonstrate that you do what you're asking them to do. And I think those things make you a leader of influence.
0: What I love about what you're saying uh, about influence is, you know, so many people, they think influence means, you know, trying to get other people to do stuff for you. But what you're describing is a way of conducting yourself and a way of treating other people, and and I think that's what real influence really looks like. I think that's so important for people to realize that if you want to have influence with others, it's it's all about how you show up and conduct yourself.
1: Well, it is, and I think what you end up doing in all organizations, and I I, I talk to the army all the time because that's my uh, my background, but What you're really trying to do is to, from the highest level to the lowest level, or from the lowest level, the squad, the platoon, the company, the battalion, the brigade, the division, the corps, you want all of those teams pulling in the same directions. The uh, uh, foundation of that, the cornerstone of the foundation are your values and the objectives that you come up with and the individual performance objectives are all oriented towards that mission you have to accomplish. And when you can do that, then you start getting a great organization. But I think it is really about building teams. And the real, the key thing is that they have to trust each other. All the members of the team have to trust each other. Uh, Special Forces is such a great organization because they have trust in each other. They take their job very seriously. They're all experts and they know what needs to be done and they're gonna go uh, do what needs to be done. People do things uh, beyond the realm of uh, what you think is possible because they believe in the organization, they believe in each other. And I think that's really important to to have in any organization. We're we're, We're in this together. And no matter what the problems are, we can get through those if we do it together.
0: I, um, I have goosebumps uh, thinking about leading people when the stakes are so high and so often there's too much to do and not enough time in the civilian world, but it must be a special kind of pressure when there's too much to do and not enough time or resources and lives are on the line.
1: Well, I think there's always a, an issue about prioritizing, and uh, I think that's what leaders can do and, and say, OK, these are above the line tasks. We've got to do these. If we get more time, we're going to do these kind of tasks. But I think you have to prioritize. And again, I think your mission, when you do a task analysis of your mission or what you're trying to do as a, as a civilian organization, uh, I work with uh, airplane engine building companies and, you know, their product is to build engines, but it's not just to build engines. What they are doing is providing mobility to people across the United States to move across the world, so to speak. And there are certain tasks that have to be accomplished in order to do that. So I think it's really important to look at what you're supposed to be doing, the task associated with them. Those are the most important things you have to do. We never have enough time, I don't think. I mean, you know, we had a saying in the army, as facetious as it is, we used to say that the army never has time to do it right, but they always have time to do it over again. Sometimes that was the case.
0: Yeah. And so what happens when you're in the moment and lives are on the line and you can't do everything? You know, I was talking with an emergency room nurse the other day and she was describing the triage process but military leadership, because you anticipate uh, being in combat, and you have to anticipate the unexpected occurring, how do you teach people to make those decisions? I think the key on that
1: is the training. And uh, I, I really uh, resonate with the, uh, the emergency room nurse that you talk to. Those are tough decisions. Those are really tough decisions. And I think the way you try to address having to make those decisions is in the training that you conduct. We in the Army spent a lot of time training, and some of the training early on was not very good. We went to a training center concept where we had a national training center, and we sent people out there to be trained in realistic battles. Uh, We had it all instrumented so that we could tie it. Determine the results of that battle based upon the action that people took. Initially, people would say, well, no, I don't think it went that way. And then we had observers, controllers out there who were observing that, and they would roll the tape and show that it did happen. And so you stop the sniveling right there. And people said, well, no, I guess I did make a mistake there. I'm sorry. I, I let my, my people down. I think it's important for leaders to be able to say that, too. Uh, if leaders always just say, no, it wasn't my fault, then they're, they're, they're not credible, in my opinion. Leaders make mistakes, and they they all have to own those mistakes. I always say that a mistake is not a failure unless you fail to learn from it. And I think what we have to do is learn from the mistakes we make. You make them in the training area. Then when you do it for real, then it's a lot easier to handle that type of thing.
0: And you talk about learning from mistakes, and, and I'm glad you mentioned that because I think one of the things that... Um, that I find really interesting and applicable from military leadership practice is the after action review. Uh, Can, can you explain that after
1: action review is a way of looking at what happened and why it happened? We
0: have in, in
1: the army now a situation where the mission's not over until we do an after action review. When we changed the army in the 1990s, uh, we did a number of after-action reviews as we got to different uh, decision points, and basically what we did is said, what did we what did we set out to do, how well did we do it, where were the challenges that we didn't meet, and what can we do about that? It, it's it's a way of learning from your the situation, and everybody participates in it. So everybody's involved at after action reviews at different uh, levels of the Army. And so each organization goes through that. It may be that we're just doing a very simple operation. Uh, but after that operation, they're going to sit down and say, OK, let's do an after action review. Everybody gathers around who participated in that. We go through what do we try to do, uh, what went well, what didn't go well. The important thing here is that you've got to emphasize the fact that what went well, there were things that went well. You can't just make it a critique. You can't make it a, a, a tough session from the standpoint of punishing people. You're not, that's what, what we're trying to do. We're trying to learn from it. And I think that's why leaders need to stand up and say, OK, I messed that up. That's on me. That's something that just has to be done.
0: And it's a fundamental spirit of continuous improvement.
1: It is. Absolutely. I and mean, that's the way you get better. Uh, we try not to make the same mistake twice. We're going to make some of them, and we try to also make sure that we learn from that. When we deployed troops into Bosnia for the first time from Europe back in 1995, we have in the Army something called the Center for Army Lessons Learned at Fort Leavenworth, Kansas. And because we were going into a new area, we sent the people from that Center of Army Lessons Learned over into Bosnia with the division that came out of out of Europe. They were there to to capture the lessons learned because we realized that we were going to need to do some things differently. And as we trained train pe- or changed people out, we needed to make sure that they were they had advantage of some of the lessons that we'd already learned over there.
0: And, and you mentioned trust and you mentioned in particular special forces and um, the, the trust between and among the, the special forces where do you think that trust comes from?
1: You know, trust is so important. It's, it's a glue that holds any organization together, I think. It takes a long time to build. Uh, you have to work hard on it every day. Every day, you're either building trust or you're losing trust. When you lose it, you lose it for a long time. It can, it can happen on just a single instant, for example. You have to rebuild that trust. I think the trust comes from people uh, observing what you're doing. Observing whether you're doing what you say you're doing. They trust you because they believe in you. And you've got to earn that trust. And you've got to earn that trust from your actions. Not from what you say. Not from what you, what you uh, write down in paper and that type of thing. But how you act. And if you're talking about doing something and you don't do that that, that way, then you're losing trust. If you do it that way, you're gaining trust. And when you gain that trust, uh, the troops or the people will follow you. They'll do what they can uh they'll move heaven and earth to uh, do the right thing
0: here here's a uh, let me pose a puzzle to you if you had to choose would you rather have the the best expert or would you rather have the person who uh, whom you know you can trust to follow through on what they say that that's
1: that's uh, that's a hard question i i want to have both uh, I think I would prefer if I could only have one, I'd like to have somebody I could trust. Because I think what we could do is teach them the expertise that they need. But trust is something that's in your heart.
0: You can learn expertise, but yes. you know, can, can you teach somebody integrity? Can you teach somebody um, how to be trustworthy? Can you teach that? I, if you,
1: I think you have to teach them by example. I think you really have to set the example on that one. And you've got to work with them. My view is that most people are honest and they want to be honest. And you've got to create an environment where uh, integrity can thrive. And you don't do that by if somebody makes a mistake, you chew them out and you holler at them and that type of thing. You correct in in private, you praise in, in public, treat them with dignity and respect. It really is that simple. It really is that hard.
0: Do, do what's right, be all you can be, and treat people the right way. Absolutely. So uh, uh, when you're communicating with a million soldiers all over the world, um, uh, that's a big challenge. Uh, more and more people are working remotely, and they're starting to understand the challenges of a distributed workforce right now. But, but, but you, you had that challenge. Uh, how did you handle it?
1: you know, the fact that the world is changing is not new. It's the rapidity of the change that really we have to deal with. And so there are things happening so fast. And if you just go through the normal standard communication means, it takes a long time to get to the people. One of the things I found when I went back to the Pentagon for the last time was that I wanted to find a way to communicate with the strategic leadership of the United States Army. The United States Army at that time had somewhere around 300 uh, general officers scattered around the world, Europe, Asia, United States, uh, just about everywhere. And I I couldn't figure out how to do that. And at the same time, I I knew that I I was on a uh, a four-year plan here where I needed to take care of myself so that I could make it through four rather demanding years, and I needed some exercise. So what I did is I started going out and running in the Washington, D.C. area, running around the monuments. And I thought I had my best thoughts while I was doing that, but when I came back, I couldn't remember what they were. So I started carrying a little tape recorder with me. Ah. And I would take my thoughts and basically uh, what I was trying to do is explain what I was thinking about, what I was doing so that they knew uh, what was going on. I then sent that email out to all the general officers and I told them from the very start, look, this is just my thoughts. Use them for whatever way you want to use them. But I want you to know what I'm thinking about, what we're doing. And uh, so you have a feel for what's going on. That became a bestseller, quite frankly. And when I would go back and talk in person to uh, the the leadership and I did that uh, uh, every 30 days, I'd have a group come into Fort Leavenworth and we'd give them some what we call pre-command training. And one of the things I did was go down and interface with them and you get questions on your random thoughts while running is what I I call that. And uh, so it was a good, good experience from that standpoint. I got to the point where I was comfortable enough with that, that we were going through how we evaluate our officers. And we had to change the evaluation system because it had gotten inflated and people were concerned about zero defects and that type of thing. So I sent out one of my random thoughts about running. and I said, I'm thinking about doing it this way. Come, give me your thoughts and uh when they came back uh i thought they had a a strong case to do it another way so i did it that way and it worked out very very well but that was just one way of what i thought was a good utilization of my time uh it was important for me to uh, maintain my stamina and i got a lot of uh joy enjoyment out of running and and uh it worked out very well, and, but I think you have to find some way to communicate what's going on. Because if you don't communicate, then rumors get started, and people go in different directions sometimes. So, uh, finding a way to communicate. I tell people in a change environment, you cannot overcommunicate. It's almost impossible. So find a way to communicate with your people. Tell them what's going on, and uh, they'll appreciate that very much, and they'll, they'll work harder for you.
0: General Dennis J. Reimer, a true American hero. Thank you so much for being a guest on The Indispensables. It's a pleasure to be with you, Bruce. Next week, I will be interviewing Dr. Lisa Wolf, who is director of research at the Emergency Nurses Association, an experienced emergency room nurse, and a scholar in her own right. If you like this episode, Please subscribe and leave us a review. Any little bit helps to drive us up the charts. You can also follow us on Twitter at goto That's at goto You can learn more about goto-ism and the techniques which make indispensable people stand out in their jobs and careers and lives. In my new book, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, Available now from Harvard Business Review Press. Available wherever books are sold. If you're interested in bulk orders, please check the show notes for more information. And finally, you can learn more about our work at Rainmaker Thinking by visiting us at rainmakerthinking.com, by following me on Twitter, at Bruce Tulgan, or find me on LinkedIn and Facebook at the links in the show notes. Until next time, stay strong and be indispensable at work.